0: Well, this morning we're starting a new series. We're in the Old Testament. It's been a little while from the Gospel of Mark, in a little seven-week hiatus there with the uh, series on finances. And I, I mentioned this, I believe I even mentioned this to the church way back in January, February-ish, that I was thinking about First Samuel. Um Samuel didn't realize it would take us this long to get there. But also during that time, I was yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, no. Yeah, yes, maybe no, maybe yes. Well, we've started, we're starting. And I've never had that kind of equivocation, so I'm not sure. I truly am open to the Lord's leading. And if I get the sense that I'm supposed to bail on this for whatever reason, At some point along the line, I will do that, but uh, that hasn't happened in 27 years. Doesn't mean that it can't, though. Starting a new series, there's always, um, it's a challenge because it's not the most exciting material because to understand the Bible properly, you need background information. uh, You need some sense of context to the particular things that we're going to be reading about in this uh, particular book. And so the way I want to start out this morning is we're going to put a picture up here, and this is yours truly. It was I, Barb took that picture. I didn't know it when she did it. And without me saying anything, though, without me giving you any context, just look at it and just kind of say to yourself, okay, okay I'm, going to, I'm going to kind of figure out what's going on here, right? And what would honestly be kind of fun to do, especially knowing this crowd, is to give you each a piece of paper and say, just write like a, you know, a a 25, 50 word little paragraph on what you think is going on here. I mean, what, what, you know, what am I doing? Am I thinking to myself, are my legs really that white? (laughs) I mean, this is late in the season, right? This was just like three weeks ago. You know, am I looking at my uh, component down there, my shifter, and trying to figure out what that blasted clicking is when I'm bursting it up a up a tough hill of 18,000 feet at about 20 miles an hour? I'm just overtaxing the equipment. I know I love my <laughs> oh. Man, this, wow, huh? I'm going to get security down here. This is a tough crowd. I'm getting no respect. Anyway, all right, so here's... What, here's the context. So I had a particularly horrid night sleeping, which that's not unusual, but this was a special one in particular. This is late in the day after I get home from work and everything else. So I was already exhausted. And I said, you know how riding invigorates you. You just need to go do it. So I made myself get on the bike and I head out and I thought, okay, I'm going to explore and do a new trail, not really knowing where I'm going. Trail meaning a loop. It's a road bike. You don't go off, off pavement by choice. Yeah. So I set out, and, okay, I am notorious for getting lost in my car. When I've been someplace a hundred times, so imagine now that multiplied on a bicycle, where the consequences are more grave when you make a wrong turn. You don't even know you've made a wrong turn. And everything within you is saying you're going this way when you're going the opposite direction. So it turned out to be a much longer ride than I had anticipated. And, you know, around here, it's there is no level ground. So I finally got home, and I just got off my bike. <laughs> and this has never happened before. And I was just hunched over my bike with exhaustion before I made that long trek into the barn there to lift my bike up and put it on my little stand thingy. So that's what was going on there. Without context, though, you're purely left to your imagination. While we have familiar stories within the Old Testament, the challenges with those stories are sometimes they get excised from the context. They get completely removed, forgetting what came before and what was coming after, in the broader setting in which the particular story occurs, such that the meaning gets, at best, twisted. Sometimes the meaning gets really embellished beyond reason. And sometimes the actual meaning or intention of the story is lost altogether. First Samuel, which we're in again, and much of the Old Testament is what's called historical narrative. That's the particular literary genre. That's not unique to, to the Bible. Anything that is history that's recorded factually, you know, is called historical narrative. So now in an Old Testament context, meaning that we are reading recorded history, a record of what took place, at least in part of what transpired at the moment with the particular people involved. But as you read, there's nothing that would suggest that it didn't actually happen. That's the nature of a historical narrative. You understand that as being part of the genre. So there's no reason to think that what we are reading at any given moment in historical narrative is a myth, or it's just an analogy, or it's an extended metaphor intended to teach some kind of life lesson. No, because it is history, we understand that we are not reading, first of all, an exhaustive, person-by-person, play-by-play record of everything that was said and done in the particular event. That's impossible to do almost. So even as we read the history of, say, um, the American Revolution, I hope that we understand that we never have a complete record of everything that happened, of everything that was said. And again, of of every person that was involved in a particular uh, episode or event that we're reading about during that period of time. Rather, the authors of any given epic decide what they think is important. And the author's writing decide what they think people need to know. And because that single consideration is going to vary from author to author, you can read three different accounts... Three different records of the same historical situation, and you can come up with three slightly different or sometimes radically different understandings of what took place and what it all meant. This is the inescapable nature of the record of nonfiction, with one and only one exception, and that is the bible the inspired infallible and errant authoritative word of god because the bible has been authored by an all-knowing creator there is no point in time that he does not know everything because in fact he is outside of time so time is irrelevant he knows everything all at once all the time And you say, wait a minute, the Bible's comprised of 66 books written by human beings. We understand that. But the doctrine of inspiration, a la 2 Timothy 3.16, is that all Scripture is inspired by God, meaning God was superintending everything that the human authors put down on paper. They did not put down anything that God did not want there, and they did not omit anything that God wanted to be there. You see, with the holy author, he is the very definition, then, of right and wrong, of good and bad, of perfect and flawed, meaning what we read and what is here, what God records is, period. There can be no accusation of bias. Well, there can be accusations, but they're not legitimate. And this is what separates the Bible from all other literature. Now, I already said the Bible is nonfiction, to be sure, but it uses various literary devices and various literary genres in communicating that nonfiction. Let me give us some examples Genesis, the very first book of the Bible is the record of the origins of the universe and mankind. When we read in there the miraculous aspects of Genesis, whether we're talking about the serpent talking to Eve in the garden, or God literally, verbally, audibly talking to Adam, or we're talking about the global deluge of mankind where everyone perished except for a handful, it is to be taken literally. When we read in the next many historical books about water coming up out of the rock where there had been no water, but God's people needed uh, water, Um, he miraculously brought it up out of the the rock. We read about the water that divided itself, and God's people passed through the Red Sea on dry ground. We understand that all of that is to be taken literally. But now, when we approach the nonfiction of Solomon, just for example, or the Songs of David and a few of the other psalmists in the Psalms, we understand by the genre that there can be a mixture of both factual occurrences combined with metaphorical expressions in order to heighten or to clarify the factual aspects of the story. Consider from the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, how beautiful you are, my darling." This is me to you. (laughs) Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. Your hair is like a flock of goats. Maybe not. Let's play it straight. Your teeth are like a flock of newly shorn ewes which have come up from their washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost her young. It sounds like you got way too many teeth. Must have a shark with several rows or something. I don't know. I'm ruining this. Your lips are like a scarlet thread and your mouth is lovely. Your temples are like a slice of pomegranate behind your veil. Your neck is like the Tower of David built with rows of stones on which are hung a thousand shields all around the the shields of mighty men. The Song of Solomon, we know, is a love letter of Solomon to his babe and these are their replies back and forth to each other. We have two, yes, that's a biblical term, babe. We have two factual, real, historical figures expressing themselves, Solomon waxing poetic and his woman responds in kind. And I am not aware of a single serious scholar or even a casual biblical explorer wringing their hands over what in this particular piece of literature, for example, what is metaphorical. It is the way we read all other kinds of literature if we're in the same genre outside of the Bible. And I'm sure that many of you, well, I better check this. I was wrong in the first service. How many of you know The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? See? So if you're familiar with The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, how do you know that The Dawn Treader isn't Larry Ellison's? Who? He's the CEO of Oracle, and he races a big ship in the America's Cup races. How do you know that the Dawn Treader isn't just one of Mr. Ellison's new acquisitions to race in the America's Cup? Isn't it because when you are reading the Chronicles of Narnia, you allow the genre of fiction, the genre of fantasy, to inform your interpretation of what you are reading? When we were singing in the very outset of the service this morning in the first song, it's the song of the redeemed rising from the African plain. It's the song of the forgiven drowning out the Amazon rain. Did any of you, while you were singing that, grapple even for a moment with music somehow coming up out of the soil in Africa or that the musical celebration of our forgiveness caused literal flooding in the Amazon rainforest? I doubt it. Was there even a hint of concern for those unfortunate Asian believers being bloated with holy fire? Did you think, wow, what is this? Is this human sacrifice? Or worse, spontaneous human combustion. No. But for some reason, when we come to the Bible, otherwise pretty bright and learned people become really silly, to be kind in their criticisms of Scripture, departing from all other principles for all aspects of literature, the Bible included. Our context for the book called 1 Samuel is that despite the way it appears in our Bibles, right before, right after Judges comes Ruth, and then comes First Samuel, but in the original order in the Hebrew Bibles, 1 Samuel comes right after the book of Judges. And in the book of Judges, which we've studied here in the not-too-distant past, only the sort of distant past, we read about 12 individuals, 12, they had the title of Judges, not like what we think about Judges today, and they were basically players on God's team, and they were given, or rather we are giving as we read through the book of Judges, their stats, so to speak, about their leadership. We read about their highs, and we read their lows, we read about their contribution to the the team overall and things move along the line of history and fits and starts with the book of judges ending with the concluding thought in those days there was no king in, in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes and so the judge, judgeships which were God's merciful attempt at reigning in the evil of mankind didn't end with Samson the last judge in the book of Judges. And now in 1 Samuel, Eli and Samuel come on the scene and they pick right up where Samson left off and the rest of the judges. What the book highlights is that the Lord's blessing on his people can be anticipated only as long as God's people remained faithful to the covenant that God made with them at Sinai. And that has not changed the idea of, of what I'll call contingent blessing is the overriding principle of our lives, as I mentioned several times just in the past series that we finished on finances. God's blessing in the day-to-day is dependent on our faithfulness to his precepts for living in the day-to-day. And so now with that little bit of background, we begin First Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zaphim from the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, and Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah. It's a het in the Hebrew, not a Hay. So actually it's Hannah. We're used to Hannah, so we're going to call her Hannah. And the name of the other, Panina. And Panina had children but Hannah had no children, so we could just skim along and go, okay, laddie da, fine, boring, keep going. In earlier days, even in our country and in past epochs in various cultures, children were seen to be a blessing, and part of that blessing in an earlier epoch was that children in our country now, and I'm thinking about an agrarian culture meaning a farming, basically a farming culture, where having children was a blessing. Children had a purpose. They could always use more farm hands. And some of you here were raised in a tradition of Roman Catholicism where large families, relatively speaking, were the expected norm. Barbara was raised in a good Catholic family. She is one of six children. And that is because Catholicism teaches that God's creation ordinance, as it's called, for being fruitful and multiplying was something that God insisted. And in fact, the Catholic Church on that point was and is absolutely correct. Only 28 verses into the creation account in Genesis... God was not ambiguous about his primary intention of what he wanted and what he desired in his purposes for the family. When a man and a woman were united in marriage, it was expressly to accomplish the purposes of God for the world. Marriage wasn't just a construct of a mutually self serving arrangement for having a readily available playmate, so to speak. It wasn't to have someone to care for you in your old age. It wasn't just to have a a partner to lift your burdens and your chores and responsibilities so that you would have more time to play with your buds or your budettes. It's the feminine of buds. And it certainly wasn't to have a business partner of sorts. Having defined equal responsibilities spelled out in the marriage in a legal document called a prenuptial agreement. It was to one degree or another all of those things, but all of those things as spelled out and as prioritized by God in the whole counsel of God's revelation to mankind. But one of God's primary purposes for the two becoming one, becoming one flesh was, in fact, to procreate. That means to have babies. Filling the earth with little image bearers of God, the Imago Dei, as everyone who comes into the world is. So that they would perpetuate the teachings and the doctrines and the patterns and the values and the goals of God. Just 28 verses into the creation of the world. Here's what we read, Genesis 128. God blessed Adam and Eve and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. In the Old Testament, childbearing was directly related to the blessing of God and barrenness, to use the word of Scripture, The inability to conceive was virtually uh, always included with a negative reference or meaning a negative connotation. So conceiving and giving birth was a time of celebration and festivity. It wasn't a time for hand-wringing and worse. But given that numerous women of note, stellar women in the scriptures were barren, we come to find out and we'll see that they were barren precisely to highlight the miraculous power of God to give new life where there had been none, thus showing that God was fully in charge, is always in charge, and his plans for the world will be accomplished. I'm thinking here of Sarah and Rebecca, and Rachel, and Leah, and several other barren women who, through the prophets, again, we understand, were, to put it a little strangely, but it's trying to contextualize for us, they were pretty much God's text messages, trying to help us understand that the barrenness of those women was a text message to reveal the barrenness of God's own children, Israel. And furthermore, what God was trying to do through and with his children for the world. And just because I am sensitive to the issue, I don't want you to misunderstand what I just said. Today, we are in a different salvation historical epic as it is called theologically. And the reality of life in a fallen world, on a fallen planet, to use the metaphor of Luke and Matthew, is that today the rains fall on the just and the unjust alike. Meaning, there are both cause and effect as well as utterly coincidental reasons for infertility today and not at all necessarily implying the direct involvement of God, meaning a negative connotation verses 3 through 7. So now this man would go up from the city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Penina his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, i.e. Penina, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. And it happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she would provoke her. So she wept and she would not eat. So Hannah is barren. And she again resides in that salvation historical timeline where God was using all kinds of things to get his people's attention, sending them messages and signs and wonders and all of that, which the author way up in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter one, verse one tells us God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, meaning using all these different kinds of things. And remember, too, that we entered this narrative in the history of God's people at a particularly low period of their existence. Hannah is childless, and she is depressed, and she is despairing over her inability to conceive. This is not a great start to this particular historical period. Again, it follows right on the heels of the book of Judges, and it's a continuation Of the less-than-stellar parts of God's children's history. So right now God's people are worshiping at a nondescript shrine, and they are worshiping under a very corrupt priesthood. But God in His mercy is on the scene. God in His mercy is on the scene, and God is involved. Elkanah, a good man, he is. Elkanah is a good man, and he truly loves his wife Hannah, But Hannah feels useless. But alas, at least she has a husband who loves her. He loves her so much, in fact, please note the sarcasm, that because of her barrenness, he takes another wife to have children that Hannah could not, ensuring the perpetuation of the name of Elkanah. Hear this well. I know that this kind of thing provokes all kinds of legitimate and valid questions beyond the purview of today's message, but let me say that polygamy was never God's intention for marriage, yet it was tolerated so that one's name would not be eliminated. We can't understand the importance of that, but that was very important. What is interesting to note is that polygamy and concubinage, or meaning taking concubines, various all kinds of women with which to have children with, though culturally tolerated, routinely, routinely brought pain and anguish and heartache and in fact sidestepped in many ways God's plans. Think about Solomon and the disastrous way he ended his life going after the foreign gods of all of his concubines and departing from Jehovah. So Penina, whose name means precious stone, is a fertile myrtle, but she is not a gem. And she's not kind to Hannah. Ironically, Hannah, whose name means favor or grace, doesn't receive any from Penina, whose name sounds like a sandwich. For those of you who don't know, that's called a panini. That's all right. I know this gets dry. we got to help out here. And Hannah is crying out in desperation for a child. And this sounds so familiar, and it should and it is intended to. This sounds very reminiscent of Sarai, a.k.a. Sarah, and Hagar. Very similar situation from which God raises up two very distinct Nations. Remember what I said just a second ago about polygamy from what I'm going to say. So from Hagar, remember, Sarah was going to have a baby. God knew that, but it wasn't happening quick enough. So Abram was going to help God out and he took Hagar through which to have children so that his name wouldn't pass out and all of that. From Hagar, she conceives and God raises up the father of of the generation of the people who are fomenting turmoil in the Middle East to this very day. From Sarai, on the other hand, God raises up a whole new kind, which is a loaded word theologically. He raises up a whole, uh, uh can't say generation, but but. It, scads and scads throughout the ages of the faithful of the saved from every tribe and tongue whose number Abraham realizes are too great to be numbered when God tells him to go outside and look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can so shall your descendants be Panina who wasn't a gem would provoke Hannah bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb and it happened year after year as often as she went up to the house of the Lord that she would provoke her and so she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why? Why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? I told you he was a good man. He's caring. He's concerned. Unfortunately, Elkanah is a classic male. He's a good man, but he can be an insensitive dolt. Seriously? You don't understand what's wrong with your wife? This has been going on for how long? Guys, we need to think before we speak to our wives in particularly tender areas. Especially when we are in that tight, if not awkward, place of decision. Could switching
1: to GEICO really save you 15% or more on car insurance? Was Abe Lincoln honest? Does this dress make my backside look big? Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance.
0: <laughs> Women, why do you do that to us? We're victims, you see. Am I not better to you than 10 sons? Oh, man. But he was sincere. He really did love Hannah. He was merely obligated to provide for Panina and the brood. But Hannah was the love of his life, which is why we're given the tiny but important detail back in verse 5 that Elkanah gave Hannah a double portion at the table. Elkanah's love language, if you're familiar with that, was expressed in faithful bountiful provision of his wife, of the one he loved. But guys, again, there are things you just don't say to your wives as Tim Hawkins reminds us.
1: choreography myself. Hey, honey, have you gained some weight in your rear end? The dress you wear reminds me of my old girlfriend. And where'd you get those shoes? I think they're pretty lame. Would you stop talking? Cause I'm trying to watch the game. If you're a man who wants to live a long and happy life, these are the things you don't say to your wife. I planned a hunting trip next week on your birthday I didn't ask you but I knew it'd be okay Go make some dinner while I watch this fishing show I taped it over our old wedding video If you're a man who've done that, a long and happy life There's all the pleasure to sit you Solo! Okay! your cooking is okay but not like mother makes the diamond in the ring i bought you is a fake your eyes look puffy, dear are you feeling ill happy anniversary i bought you a treadmill <laughs> you're a man who wants to live long and happy long that you, these are the things you don't so you're a man who doesn't want to get killed with a knife These are the things you don't say to me.
0: Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and a razor shall never come on his head. Hannah makes what is called the vow of a Nazarite. It's a very serious pledge which turns one child or the individual more commonly would be the one to make that, such as Samson. Samson uh, was under the vow of the Nazarite. Um, put, put them under special rules of uh, eating and drinking that didn't even apply under the rigorous uh, dietary laws and stuff. and Put them either even under more stricter things of what they could and could not do with their quaff and, uh, and all of that. It was taken very seriously. And Hannah is here, and she's pouring out her heart. And now Eli comes on the scene, another man of great compassion and sensitivity. Now it came about as she confronted, praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. So Eli thought she was drunk. (laughs) Nice, nice. Talk about leaping to conclusions. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. To Eli's credit, he at least backpedals. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This introduction to this historical narrative, all about God's people, God's children. You have the immediate of what's taking place, and then you have the big, broad picture of what is coming. Because remember, Jesus on the road to Emmaus said, he began to explain who he was to the disciples through the scriptures, for they are written of me. And the only scriptures he had was the Old Testament. God wants them to know, God wants us to know that he is intimately involved in the affairs of mankind. He isn't this deity that is just far off, far removed, got everything going, maybe started the you know, the old Victrola record player where he'd started spinning and then it just kind of kept going by itself, at least for a while. No, God is right there and he has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And he is in the midst of your life and he's in the midst of your family, and he's in the midst of this church, and he's in the midst of this country, and he's in the midst of the world, that does not mean that everything is going to go smoothly. We know all those things about a fallen world, and about a disobedient people. But I really appreciated Gus's prayer about the Lord, and concerning the last song about, Lord, we need an awakening. It's got to start with me and then our households, and then the church. Because, again, we are told that judgment will begin with the household of God. Oh, we're always thinking about they, them, and those. God said, yeah, judgment's going to begin with the household of God because we know better, or at least we should. And so we'll see what God has for us in the book of 1 Samuel hopefully i can keep it somewhat riveting let me have you stand scott if i remember right are you here yes you are scott ludic one of our elders we'll close our time in prayer
2: bow with me as we pray please Lord, first of all, we just want to come to you and express to you what a privilege it is to speak directly to you and know that you are indeed listening and that you are indeed here, right in our presence, sitting right next to us. Lord, thank you for the context of of your word, your Bible. Thank you for the knowledge that it is in fact perfect history, without flaw. Lord, as we embark on this this journey in First Samuel, we just think of your will being done through the through the bond of marriage, and that family is in fact your mechanism to leave a godly legacy. Having said that, Lord, help us to have the, the hearts, the compassion on those who are barren. And in so doing, help us to reach out and to share your words with all of those that we meet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.